0: Richard Betts back on the show hello sir how are you
1: hey I'm excited to be here
0: I'm quite well thank you nice to see you thank you nice to see you so I feel like last time you were here you had this crazy idea some party and you said to yourself and your friend maybe we should do a scratch and sniff wine book wouldn't that be cool crazy right and I feel like a lot's happened since since that conversation
1: a lot has happened Uh, the book came out October of 2013 And we made the New York Times bestseller list with a scratch and sniff book, which is kind of awesome.
0: Has that ever happened before? Any other scratch and sniff
1: book ever? God, I don't think so. At least not in the last 30 years or so. Not since kids books,
0: right? So no. Did you see it at the time as like bridging childhood and the wine at the same time? I mean, it's not something that happens a lot. There's not a lot of childhood wine books, right? Maybe because of...
1: They're not. But I think, I mean, for me, the enthusiasm is the same. I mean, I try to wake up and be a child every day. For better or for worse, but yeah, you know, if we can, I mean, you, me, our ambitions in wine, everybody that you know works in wine, our lives get better if we can knock it off a pedestal. You know, we got to invite people to this, not make it scary. So it felt like a natural,
0: and it seemed like people really embraced the idea in the scratch and sniff form.
1: I totally more than I think anyone even thought that that
0: would happen. Yeah. it's was, it was pretty cool. Originally, when you were game planning it with the publisher, I mean, what were those conversations like?
1: Well, the first conversations, the the saying goes, you can't publish unless you have an agent. You can't get an agent unless you publish, right? So it's that chicken and egg thing. And uh, I actually, I asked three people. I asked Kate Crater, Eric Asimov, and Tyler Hamilton, the cyclist. Hey, I need an agent. Like, who should I talk to? And all of them independently said, oh, you got to talk to David Black, super agent David Black in Brooklyn. And I talked to David... And he's great. He's uh, such a such a pit bull um, and wonderful man. He said, "Look, man, you know what? I'm going to be straight with you. There are probably five people in the world that could actually make this book. So, is it a cool idea? Yeah. Do I think we're going to sell it? Mm, hard to say. You know. So we we've only got five balls to throw, but I'll throw them. Let's do it. You mean uh, in terms of publishers? In terms of publishers, people yeah. who can
0: actually do a scratch and sniff exactly. format.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, and I had made the book like it was done. So you know, with my co-authors Wendy and Crystal, we got the whole thing finished, and I funded the whole thing. I believed in it. Nobody believed in it. And they're like, oh, you're an idiot, and uh, like whatever. You know, you, gotta, you got that you from do people. You, yeah,
0: you went to people with this. Hey, this is what I've been up to. Totally. Scratch and sniff, and they were like, that's retarded.
1: Yeah, exactly. Just like that, and you're like, okay, cool. But David saw it, and uh, he took it to a few people, and Houghton Mifflin saw it. they have been a great partner to us, and so they published it. And then uh, it's funny, there were more than five people that came out of the woodwork asking for book two. Everyone figured out you know, that they could, actually could make scratch and stuff. And that was,
0: that was gratifying. Yeah. What ballpark are we talking about for sales? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands.
1: I mean, it's, it's on a crazy pace. It's m- most weeks, it sits number one in wine on Amazon throughout the whole year, which is kind of a crazy thing to think, you know?
0: And do you get any feedback as to who might be purchasing that book? We do get some feedback, and uh,
1: you know it's funny i I still obviously make and sell wine, and when you're when you're doing that, you're in the restaurant and you usually walk into the kitchen and you'll go down the hallway and work work towards the towards the front of the house and there's your map, you know the map to your desires that we created as a part of that book, pinned on the wall, you know so it's everything from professionals, you know weight staff and and wine people to, you know, to just casual drinkers. And that, the, the neat gift of the book, you know, we're not here to, you know, to tell a story about a place or, you know, um, contribute to the greater canon of the history of wine. It's, it's to help, we, we provide a tool, you know, and the tool helps you understand what you like, why you like it, and therefore what's going to make you smile. And, you know, whether you know a lot or you don't know anything at all, you can use this book and, and figure that out. And then your life's better because you're drinking again, right? So, I think that that's pretty cool. That feels nice to share.
0: It feels nice, like that's a good feeling that that's out there in the universe. Totally, it feels great. In fact, and I feel like a lot of times it was given as a gift. Like people wanted to share that with people. It's huge.
1: I mean, look, our release date in October is not by accident. Yeah, it's very much geared towards. I mean, it just make it easy for people to get their heads around it. Like, oh yeah, so and so would love this, and then it becomes infectious. You know, and some people say, "Dude, I got three copies of your book for Christmas." And I'm like, "I'm so sorry," except I'm not because I appreciate. It. <laughs> um And we got paid for all those, so thanks for that. But uh, it, you know, it just starts the whole cycle in motion and helps people think about it. and They put their hands on it once you touch. I mean, touching it's a big deal. Tactile, a real book matters. You
0: know, especially now, right? Because all the time you hear about like it's the digital world and all this stuff, and this is like the opposite of the digital world.
1: It's the total opposite of the g- digital world, and I think. You know, the digital world, I was thinking about this a little earlier today. The digital world doesn't spell doom so much for, um, you know, things like books or or any of the formerly tactile things. I think what the digital world brings us is in the end um, itself, but also the things that remain are of better quality because we, because they matter. You know what? I buy real books because I like the way they feel and I mean, obviously, our book can't be digital because you, know, you can't send the smells through the computer. But I think you know, there's so much more focus on where things are made, how things are made, what the materials they're made from, how they feel, how they look, and that's a that's a nice result. Where before everything had to be made and be physical, you know, there was room for garbage and there was room for nice stuff. But now, yeah, you know, there are nice books, there are nice magazines, there are nice blue jeans, there's just just nice stuff to touch, and I feel like there's more emphasis on that than ever.
0: You know, when I've talked to publishers, because every so often I've talked to them either for the show or for some other reason, what they've told me is, look, we're interested in books that are more like a year in Provence. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a love story amongst the vines. Because as soon as we do facts and figures, a blog in the digital world is going to beat us on that. Yeah. But it's hard for a blog to really beat you on smells, right? Totally. So, by definition of the category, it was like, yeah, you're not going to be able to compete with this book in the digital world. Exactly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just can't. And... You know, that didn't factor into our thinking, but now that you mention it, it's it's kind of, it's a little insurance, I guess. Yeah.
0: A lot of times, you know, when I have published an article or when I've done something, as soon as it's gone out, I've been like, oh, I could have done that part. That could have been a little more. Yeah. So what were your feelings about that with the book? Were there moments where you were like, you know, what with, if we'd done that page different?
1: Yeah, with the wine book, for sure. Um, we're, I think the information in the book is great. I think some of the spreads we could have made richer, you know, I mean, it's only 10 spreads or 20 pages and all the info's in there. But, you know, as the three of us, Wendy, Chris, and I look back at it, like, you know, we could make that richer. We could redo some of these things. And, and we may actually, um,
0: there could be a future one
1: <clears throat> for sure. Yeah. Even just a reissue of, I mean, it's still being issued. It's, it's in its umpteenth printing, which is great. But, um,
0: If the world of Atlas of Wine can be republished so many times with a new version, why not, you know? Exactly, exactly. And
1: then we made good on that with the follow-up book, right? So, like, okay, what were the lessons we learned? Let's apply that.
0: But one of the things that you did with the first book that you've carried through, the second book, maybe even more so, is that you kind of distilled this complex world into some fundamental handles that people could get a grip on.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the methodology, right, is that we apply ourselves to topics that our methodology works, works well with, such as, you know, we can dissect a frog and you look at the parts and you understand what makes the frog tick. And we can do that exact same thing with wine. And we did it with whiskey, of course, so, uh, you know, book two. And then once the reader looks at that and understands how it ticks, unlike the frog, they actually get to put the pieces back that they want and leave out the pieces they don't and come up with the drink that's actually going to make them happy, right? So you're like, you know what? I like the corn. I don't like the malted barley. Or you know what? I like the red fruits. I don't like the black fruits. So on and so forth. And you work through that and you assemble something that is all of your likes. And then therefore, you know, points and tells you like, hey, this is what you should drink based upon what you like. And that's that's pretty cool.
0: But it's also got this kind of like um choose your own adventure aspect to it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when you're putting the frog back together, it's like, well, you know what, I don't want the spleen. I want two livers, you know, whatever it is. And and it's totally up to you. And that, that's the cool
0: part. That's like you could part. go down behind what's down oak door number two. Exactly. And yeah. find a different answer. E- exactly.
1: You know, it's like those those books you used to read as, as a kid, like, okay, you want to kill the princess? You know, turn to chapter four. You want to sleep with the princess? Go to chapter three. And it's like, well, you know, um, that, that was,
0: uh, it's not different than that, really. It's, it's very, very similar. Um, and at that way, it also kind of allows you to grow with it. As totally. your wine interests change over the years? Like you could go back a few years later and be like, you know what? I'm not so into oak anymore. Exactly. What yeah, do you got for me now?
1: Totally. It could be your interest. could be your mood. could be whatever. You know, I mean, you can just course by course, like, hey, I had that bottle. You know what? I'm going to view this differently now and say, you know what? I don't want the oak anymore. I want extra oak or whatever it is. And you can keep going back to it. And really, all the wines in the world are on there.
0: So much of the original book, when I look at it, is so illustration driven. I mean, there's totally. not really
1: that many words. Nope. No. Right? that's part of the beauty of it. You know, I mean, when you're, when you work to keep it, spare is not the right word. When you, when you distill it down to the key thoughts and pieces, then that's good work. And it's cool to take out all the superfluous stuff. And if you can tell a story in fewer words and use the illustrations and the placement of the words to actually tell the story, then I think that that's thoughtful, good work that helps you get the idea across in a very quick and meaningful way, right? I mean, it's easy to be superfluous and go on and on, but I'm not doing the reader any favors at that point, right? The reader's like, dude, give it to me on the hurry up, bring it. And
0: that's what we're trying to do. And I, and I think it works. In a broader culture where sometimes people make wine somewhat complicated, mm, when they talk about,
1: about it. God, all the time, right? You know, Everyone wants to put it on a pedestal. Everybody wants to make it hard. Everybody you know, wants to tell you the story of, you know, X generation and the dog and, you know, all this stuff that I get it. It's romantic, but it doesn't make it easy for someone who hasn't been there and pet the damn dog or, you know, had dinner with the family. Like we're lucky we get to go and do that stuff. And it's really wonderful. And it's fun to share those stories amongst people that have also gone and do that, done that stuff. But it doesn't recruit people. You know, it doesn't bring people to it. And that's that's my job, I think. I mean, my job is to say, hey, man, this is a great party. Come on in. Not like, oh, you should have been there. Like, fuck that. That sucks. That's, that's just exclusive.
0: Did you think that the book was getting placements in outlets or bookstores that it, normally wine books would not get?
1: Totally. You know, this was actually an interesting thing for me. I thought we would have this thing published in all kinds of languages, and we don't. And that bummed me out. I was like, man, we're selling so many of these books. Why don't we have a German publisher? Why don't we have, you know, whatever, an Italian publisher? Except I was recently in the Vienna airport and walked to the airport and went to buy some playing cards and chewing gum. And I go in there and there's my book next to Malcolm Gladwell. And they're just selling the English version. I was like, "Okay, fine. I'm cool with that. That works. It works fine. It actually probably works better because, you know, my own isms are my own isms and they probably wouldn't translate so well. Um, so it's been cool to see it spread far and wide and in places like airports or wine shops or wineries or whatever it may
0: be. What have been the moments where you encountered the book in its physical form and were like, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. who knew? Yeah, who knew? But, you know, it, people said, oh, my God, I got this really cool book. And they start telling you about it. And you're like, oh, my God, I wrote that book.
0: And like the part where you say, I'm a wine person. I'm involved with wine. They yeah. start saying, oh, no, there's this
1: really cool book. You should check it out. Exactly. And you're like, wow, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Send me a copy, would you? Um, that's, that's pretty gratifying, too. It's cool.
0: So the day before the book goes out to the public, what's in your mind? What's, what's in your head before it goes launch?
1: Mm. The first time around, it was maybe a little bit more innocent. And I was probably thinking more about it. Um, although it's been two years, so I, I don't remember. Um, now we're on the verge of that again with the Whiskey Book. And the buildup has been much more um, strategic, I mean as it should be i mean we all make mistakes just don't make them twice you know learn from them and so now that ah, tomorrow's the day but you know, you've got a flurry of stuff that you've been working on for the last six months and things that'll happen tomorrow and things that happen the day after tomorrow and things that happen next month and you know we we're planning for a book event in february today and and so it's it just once you figure out how to push on lots of levels all at once um, no single day seems to take on the same amount of importance.
0: And I feel like a lot of times the publishers tell you, look, a lot of the promotion is going to have to be on you. You're going to have to get out there and sell this book. Did that happen to you? 100%.
1: That, that's absolutely true. My publisher has been very helpful with the, the public relations efforts. And uh, we have a wonderful woman named Jill Browning. If any of you guys are publishing books, I can't recommend her highly enough, who's coordinated all those efforts. She's been great. But, you know, Thankfully, my partners, Wendy, uh, McNaughton, Crystal, English Saka, and Chris Saka, we all have spent uh, and we spend a lot of time in this whole social media thing. And our channels have been great. I mean, they're all ready to push. And, and it's amazing how effective that is. Like with the wine book, for example, you know, in the first 18 hours, we sold out Amazon. Like that's kind of, that's kind of a thing kind of a disturbing thing too you're just like god man i wish they had more books but um but just by virtue of tweeting and that was it you know you, you blew up amazon and the books are gone and so that's that's kind of cool to know that you can actually do that
0: You know, so we're not talking about billboards here or no. car car radio ads we're no. talking about social media straight up tweets yeah nothing mail, nothing bought,
1: just tweets tweets, texts, like, hey, man, you know, and and sending advanced copies, like, hey, if you like it, talk about it. If you don't, please put it on your bed, (laughs) you know, something like that. And uh, and people have responded really well to that.
0: What do they respond to? I mean, what do you hear the most? I mean, I know when people come up to talk about the podcast with me, I know what they talk about often. Yeah. What do you hear when they talk about the book?
1: You know, I, I think their biggest surprise is that you pick up something that's disarming just because it's so, you know, it's a kid's book for adults. And then you even just looking at it, you learn a ton. It's in there. And I think that's a big surprise. you know it's a real juxtaposition to have something that looks so you know so so playful be so packed with info. So that's for sure the biggest takeaway.
0: Have you seen a different response from European cultures where as a child they grow up with wine versus the American culture where it's denied them during childhood? <laughs> exactly for
1: sure. you know the, the American culture is all about it. And your European culture has been has been into it, but to a different degree and more like Denmark. They that's the one place where they actually did publish a foreign language edition, and then they like latched onto my identity and they're buying buying a bunch of wine from us. And it's I've never been actually, but it's it's a they love it. So I need to go and figure out what that's all about. But that's by far the exception to the rule. By far,
0: in general, the Europeans aren't responding to it the same way.
1: No, they're not. No, and their own their own wine consumption is going backwards per capita. You know, ours is growing, and theirs is retreating.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your collaborators in this project, how you yeah. met, and what is it like to collaborate on, on this book that's like full sensory. It's awesome. It's I love.
1: I'm I definitely. I sometimes work well with a team, and most of the time, I can't work with anybody else at all. Like I, that's a for sure Richardism that. I'm a shitty delegator. I expect people to learn via Socratic method. That makes me a terrible manager. I mean, I know it. I I admit it. I'm not a great manager, and I ought not be one. But when it comes to this, I'm not suggesting at all I'm managing my co-creators. I'm just talking about how I work with other people.
0: Because I remember in the old Richard story when you were in the kitchen, there was a food fight and throwing of stuff. Yeah, scallops, exactly. Some,
1: (laughs) Some tempers. For sure. I mean, for sure. And, and I, I, am okay with all of that. You know, if you, if you have an idea and a belief and you're, you're, you're cool with it then, you know, live it. And I'm doing my best to do that. In this case, I, I would say the most important thing is something I learned from my first partnership, Betts and Shoal with Dennis Scholl is that it's about complementary skill sets. I've learned this the easy way and the hard, hard way. I mean, I've had some situations where we didn't have that. We had overlapping skill sets and guess how all well that works. Well, it just doesn't just doesn't fucking work. And then it blows up. And we've had that happen too. But if you have complementary skill sets and everyone recognizes what everyone else does really well and what everyone else brings to the table and what it, you need from each other, exactly. It works flawlessly. And I would have to say that is very much the case with creating this book. I mean, it's really, it's a joy. Sitting down to work with Wendy and Crystal and actually Carla Razuski provided a ton of help, and particularly with research and tasting for this, the next book. Uh, it's a joy I mean it's just a joy and and we each offer thought you know with each other's area of expertise but it's just like they're just like pretty little you know bubbles that you throw in their direction and maybe if they were mulling on something it helps them see the color red again or, or you know like gets them unstuck or something like that I know that um, you know Crystal in particular was really helpful with me Trust, you know we're in this business right so how do you boil down your knowledge and make it make it easy and make sure that people that aren't in the business can actually understand what you're talking about and she was super helpful with me to that in, in that capacity and then you know once it gets unstuck and it starts flowing you give it to her and she like you know even just placement on the page it's crazy how much that actually matters you know knowing like which way your eye flows and and for an example of that, if you guys listening can imagine, I shoot, shoot a lot of photographs and I shot one particular photograph with a, a vertical element going from the lower right to the upper left. And my photography instructor at the time, I was living in Italy, he's like, you know what, why don't you flip the, the negative over and print it again? And so then the vertical element went from the lower left to the upper right. He's like, which do you prefer? And I was like, of course I prefer the latter. He's like, because that's the direction you read in. And so these things that just like aren't intuitive to me, but they are to somebody. And once they can figure out how to make that placement work, it's really, A, it's fascinating. And B, just like, holy shit, that just makes it so much better. And I never would have got there. So it's a joy that we all like know what we do, at least to to our own satisfaction. And then it clicks.
0: One of the things I've noticed about you is that you like to learn things about you. Like you like to learn, you know, make realizations about your own self. 100%. Right. It's
1: super important.
0: And when you say Socratic method, I mean, a lot of that is about that kind of thing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean,
1: that's some of the... the Greatest joy is like understanding how you tick, you know, dissecting your own your own being, your own frog, and then hopefully putting it back in a fashion where you either are better or smarter or derive more joy from the activities you're doing or change your activities so you derive more joy in life. I think that that matters a lot. That that's the thing. I'm my greatest fear is running out of time. It's I I flip out about it and. You know, we all say it, but as far as I know, we we really do only get one shot here. And so I want to make it great without being obsessive. You know, that's a fine line. You know, I can obsess over all this stuff. And then your obsession makes your pursuit of it being great. Even if you touch the great thing, it's not going to be great because you're obsessed. You know, so how do you, how do you toe that line and continue to work hard on something and to get better, you know, do uh, more is definitely not a word I want to use. But um, you know, just just make your experiences richer. How do you do that, right? And I think you do it by being candid with yourself, by being honest. And like, you know what? I didn't do that very well. Or that didn't make me very happy. Um, I don't like this result. I don't like this about myself. I do that all the time. But that doesn't mean I beat myself up. It's like, you know what? I don't like that about myself. I'm embarrassed about that action. I have tons of stuff I'm embarrassed about. To wallow in it is the biggest... Freaking mistake you can make. No wallowing. No wallowing permitted, period. No self pity, no, because then you're just, you're just wasting time, right? I have this tattoo. This is a new thing. It says, next play, next play, next play. And I, I think about that all the time. And that's it. That's a, for all of you out there that don't know basketball or, or Coach K, he's the basketball coach of Duke, and he's just, just a wizard way beyond the game. He's just like, you know, he gets in people's heads and it's all about, you know, I don't, it doesn't matter what has already happened. There's only so much time left on that scoreboard and is ticking down. So focus on what you're doing right now and how to make it better. And I wake up every day thinking about that.
0: And I feel like that part about, is that making me happy or did that make me happy? You've taken and shared with other people in a way that's been commercially successful. Like you said, this was a happy experience for me or this would make me happy. Maybe. And if I put that out there, I bet you people are going to commercially respond to that. They're going to purchase said thing. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a hundred percent. I'm the lucky guy that actually I'm, I'm making a living at it and it's, and it's good. It's great. I mean, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy in the world when it comes to that. It's not, it's uh and that's also, I mean, all these things are fine lines, you know, it's easy to pick holes in or, you know, you can take the pessimistic view or we can take the honest view or you can take the optimistic view or whatever it is. But for me, I look with the wines you make, if you don't want to drink them, I'll drink them all. I really will. I'll drink them all. I'm figuring out what I'm going to do next to pay the rent. But I actually believe that. And I, I'm frequently, I do, you know, more than once I wake up with a headache. Um, but the point is, when, when you are so committed to something, it, it has gravity. You know Your constituency grows. People are like, you know, even if they don't really like your wine, it, at least they see like, okay, it is okay to live a life like that and to drink like that and to enjoy life like that and eat like that and what, whatever it may be. You, you almost you know, you know give permission in this kind of strange way. And I'm not, I don't mean that in, I'm putting myself in some exalted place, but hey, I'm doing it and it seems to be okay. And that resonates with people. when it resonates with people, then then that's cool,
0: you know? And in many ways, I think of that as your brand. When I follow you on social yeah. media, it's like, hey, I'm having fun doing this. Want to come have fun do and with me or like yeah, me? Totally. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, there's very few downer tweets. Totally. You know what I mean? I appreciate that. Thank you. I yeah. mean, uh, or if they are, they're frustration that you're not able to have fun because, like, this... Airline clerk is denying uh, you this exactly chance. It. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Exactly, it. I do know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> those are painful moments. But um, no, that's a, that's exactly it. And and plus, you know, even if it's not something I want to broadcast, keep a bad moment. It's definitely something I want to get over, get by. I want to move beyond
0: it for myself. You don't want people replying to that. Yeah, totally. You, you like, want people replying to when you went and touched a bear. Exactly. That's exactly it. Like yeah. a cuddly bear. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or shot skeet for the first time like we did the other That was Which yeah. looked like a lot of fun, honestly. Oh I saw you do that and I was like, wow, not only is he naturally good at that, yeah. apparently, but it seems like a fun thing to go do. It was super
1: fun. Yeah, like, and I'm a huge fan of gun control we should have much better gun control than we have and i i mean some of my peers have actually screamed to me about that they're on the far like you know actually i've never been in a twitter fight i feel like those are the dumbest things i actually gotten one uh once actually drew Hendricks. hey drew if you're out there um anyways enough, enough of that whole point is um yeah, you know, have fun. Try it all. See what happens. And if it doesn't bite you, maybe do it twice.
0: And the thing about the time, I mean, I feel like that's been made explicit, at least in the books. Like yeah. with the whiskey book, you're like, look, we're on this earth for a short period of time. I mean, this is an explicit thing. Yep. So we should have fun with it. That's 100%. a sentence in the book that's early in, right? It is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that the book starts with that. Um, I mean, why wouldn't we? Right? Like, why wouldn't we? I don't, I can't, I really, truly can't think of any reason not to wake up every day and endeavor to have a good time. Really. I mean, you know, if you have a shitty job, quit. Whatever. I mean, what's the worst thing that can happen? You can say, oh, this, that, and the other. It's like, well, how about you just go to the beach and find seashells? That's pretty great. You know, that's actually, that is literally my fallback plan. You know, like, if nothing else worked, and I had no more money, I'd figure out how to get myself to the beach, and I would find, I'd be a seashell collector.
0: You know, you're someone who doesn't like to waste time? What was the downtime between the two books? I mean, how many days did you allow yourself before you were like, yeah, we got to write another one of these?
1: Well, one, I definitely am frequently pushing on several things at once. So there's, there's no real downtime. That's the first part. The second part is I think we just, we were all so excited and really believed in the methodology. We thought there would be a second book no matter what. So it was just as soon as you know, we were done with the first one. We are like, what's next? And that was before the first one was even published. You know, we just we just had a real feeling that I think it's going to work. And we really love the process of working together. So let's do it. And...
0: I gotta be honest, you surprised me because I thought it was gonna be like wine faults. I thought it was gonna be like icky bicky uh. smells, like <laughs> you know, like the horrible yeah. no yeah. good Christmas, like yeah. that kind of thing. Totally. totally. I thought it was gonna be like this is the the smell of cork and like a little illustration of a guy holding his nose. Or totally. Okay. Know.
1: Well, the cork smell, for example, I really wanted to put that in the first book, and I don't know um, if you guys received any of this, but in probably like 2004. I got a kit. I was buying one at the Nell and I got a really cool kit from uh, Randall Graham at Bonnie Dune. Um, and I they sent them out to a bunch of people, and it was this like carnival box, and in it there was a spark gun, and there it was in a bottle of Bonnie Dune, you know, under the screw cap, and they were celebrating that they were putting in a screw cap for the first time. It also came with a totally bitchin' little jar of cork taint. It was a TCA sample. I was like, that's awesome. And I really wanted to put that in the first book. And I called him and he's like, dude, there's, you You can't do that. Actually, correspondent corresponded. You can't do that. Even the tiniest amount of this will like pollute a whole city block. Like it just, it just doesn't work. So, you know, I, I wish I could like help you figure out how to do that, but I can't. So that was a that was a real learning experience, and even if we did get it in the book, it would have run over everything else in the book too. So
0: you're like my book's corked, and like people were returning it to their retailer and exactly, stuff.
1: Exactly, totally. So no, yeah, no, no book of faults. But you know what? As a sommelier, and you know if there are any sommeliers listening, this is a great thing to do. So when we would get a corked bottle, we wouldn't pour it out. We'd save it, right? And then you can show people. And, and you know, over time, it, it, who cares if the wine itself, like the fruit goes away. You still have this, you know, basically this tincture of TCA. You can train your staff. You can train your guests. It's, it's really a cool thing to
0: keep around. It's cool to have. So that moment when you're like, oh, yeah. it's happened to me. It's actually totally. a gift. You know, it's actually a gift. It's a training moment. It is a training moment. Which is actually a very Richard way to look at it, actually. Yeah, thanks. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, the personal thing where you're trying to figure yourself out. Sounds a lot like when I talk to exercise guys when Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out how to better make use of their exercise routine. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I used to be
1: one of those exercise guys.
0: You know what I mean? Like, hey, you can do it this way. Yep. And then, you know, you're going to... Less impact, better results. Right? Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, So who first said the word whiskey?
1: God, I don't even know. We threw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall including beer, which can't happen, won't happen. Why is that? There's no more sense of place. Yeah, is that true? It's, I think it's totally true. Like, you know, 10 years ago, I think the book could have been done. And today, the proliferation of microbrews, which is just so exciting. You know, I brought you Kate and that's what we're drinking. I don't drink a lot of the microbrew stuff, but what's exciting about it is that it's a huge, amazing, beautiful world of so many possibilities in beer. But with that, you can make something and – California or Colorado or Texas that tastes just like something that, you know, over the last 600 years came from Belgium and only Belgium. But now you can isolate those yeast strains and, you know, the whole thing where they age those beers or, or brew those beers in these open top buildings and these yeasts lived in the rafters and that's why it tastes the way it does. Well, guess what? We can replicate that all over the world now and people are doing it. So you can't say, okay, if you like this, then you should drink, you know, beer from this place. And the the map it it would just be incongruous. Because
0: and, place has been part of both the wine book and the whiskey book. And if yeah. you take that out, yep. then you're saying no book.
1: You know, I'd have to think about the other topics, but I think in this case with regards to beer, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I mean, yeah, can we classify all the beers? Totally. You know, but there's first of all there's a zillion of them. And they they when you take away place, You've then a zillion organizational categories you can't narrow it down in a meaningful way, so it's just it's it, re- it remains too broad, even after you understand like why it is the way it is well, it's the way it is because someone made it that way, not because of geography, which matters that's it's one of the winnowing factors you know,
0: so the fact that someone in Vermont can make a really good creek, yeah, argues against having a book like that, yes,
1: and someone should write the book, but you won't be able to do what we do, give that gift of saying answer three questions, and we'll tell you exactly what to drink based on what you like. That would be impossible to do in beer
0: today. And that's really the trick. And, and in a way, your books are doubling as buying guides.
1: They're enablers, just like me. You know, that's what we do is like help you figure out what's going to make you smile. Yeah. So yeah.
0: So it's about self-realization, really. At the, at the fundamental part, the 100%. books are about. Realizing who you are and what you
1: want—it's what democracy is all about. I think you know. I mean, no one tells you how to prepare your hamburger, how to have it cooked, what dental floss to buy, what toothbrush to use. We decide all that, you know. So when it comes to, to flavor, like why, you know, why would you let anyone else tell you what you like?
0: Because that really plays into the idea of a children's book, right? Because totally. often they do that.
1: Yeah, often they do do that, and I think that's a great lesson. You know, I I really think. The time of the critic has never been less important than now. I mean, really, they just matter so much less, which is totally exciting. And if we're willing to just give a you know, take a tiniest bit of time and begin to educate ourselves, we're on the whole new path to glory and happiness. And, and that's the key. Instead of like, oh, it's got 100 points, you know, who fucking cares? You know, it doesn't mean you're going to like it. You know, I, I, in fact, I can think of certain critics that uh, I don't like any other 100-point wines. You know, it's not because I know better or anything. I just like, I have a different palate, right? You know, I just, just do. You know, when was the last time you went to dinner with your friends and all of you ordered exactly the same thing? Never happens. Doesn't happen. So, used to, though.
0: It used to be. You know, in the 90s. Oh, the critics, yeah. yeah. You know, everyone, it would be pretty predictable. You were into wine, so you were into these wines.
1: Totally, and that's just because we didn't know any better. You know, our wine drinking history is so short in this country. They're like, oh, and it was the province of the wealthy and the stuffy and the sommelier was an old guy in a tuxedo with a silver cup around his neck. Like, he didn't invite anybody to the party, and there there was no party. So people wanted, like, a a quick cheat sheet. Like, okay, what do I order? Order the 100-point wine. Like, okay, well... It was a Band-Aid that caused its own problems. When you pull that off, you got a rash, you know? So thankfully, we've got the salve, and that's just education.
0: And I feel like what's happened is we've all become much more comfortable with the idea of a search box that we drive, that it gives us the results that's the the function of the search box. We type something in there and it gives us the results that are relative to that search. Exactly. But we're all used to this idea now, right? Like there is, yep. you tell me what to look for and I will tell you the results back. And your books essentially follow the same idea except exactly. it's through smell and through the choices that you make, right? Totally, exactly. Yeah,
1: you know, it'd be cool to if we could, you know, someone should do this, take the wine wheel or the whiskey wheel that we've done and you can have them make an app, you know? And, and then if you can just keep making the thing smarter and smarter. You know what? Liked it, didn't like this part of it, didn't like that part of it. And, you know, simple one-click stuff. You could, you know, create your own digital sommelier in your pocket.
0: But those two wheels are somewhat different. And the fact that the wine wheel was more general and the whiskey wheel is pretty specific, I think. It is. We wanted
1: to, to step that part up for book two. You know, if we just, you know, 10 minutes ago, we were talking about, like, what did you learn in book one and what did you want to do different in book two? It's also, and whiskey lends itself to this more which we should talk about too. Spirits Making spirits is very different than making wine. But, you know, Lefroig 10 is Lefroig 10. It's a style, and it's the same thing. You know, we don't look at a vintage. We just know that it's 10-year-old Lefroig every time we buy it. And it tastes pretty much the same every time we buy it. And so we can, then, we can say on this whiskey wheel, you know, the whiskey wheel where you answer three questions and it tells you what to drink. Well, it's populated by 300 actual possibilities that you can go to the store and find. Which is which is great, and because it's such a steady thing, as I said, you know, this Lafroy Ten is LaFroy Ten, then it actually works. But if I, you know, if we use the wine wheel and it points to, you know, '94 Cune Rioja Grand Reserva, well, you know, that's going to be gone next year, and then the wheel's dated and it doesn't work. So instead, it points you to Rioja period, and then develop a relationship with someone at Crush or wherever it is that, you know, you buy wine. Um, that that matters. So. With whiskey lending itself to that, it made it really easy and very gratifying to say, these things are interesting. They're worthy of your attention,
0: and probably better distributed, like for sure, w- across the nation, for if sure. If you're in Wisconsin, you're going to find your Lafroric ten, but you may not find your Kuer absolutely. absolutely. And then, as a spirit producer, i'm a, I'm on that
1: side of the fence, too. It's a very different meditation. Like with wine, You know, we get to dream stuff up and you know what, I didn't like that as much or I'm really curious about that. I want to do that and try these things. And every year you get a swing. And if you make one in two hemispheres, well, then you get two swings every year. And that's kind of great. Once you like arrive at a style with a spirit, if it catches hold and people come to depend on it, well, guess what? You're done. You can just figure out small, you know, nuances of how to maybe work smarter. But in terms of the stylistic experiment, it's over, which is For me, it was shocking, like super frustrating at that point. Like, oh wait, what? What no? This is no, this is like how I tick. I'm I make shit. I create stuff and dream stuff up and like, wait, this so oh wow. These you scratching your head. It's a trip. But again, it lends itself well to a whiskey book.
0: Did you realize at the time that whiskey was gonna become more and more popular over the period of time that you were writing the book?
1: Yeah, I I did, and I knew that Google was going to be Google, and that Yahoo was going to go backwards. And I bought. I used to lend Steve Jobs money. <laughs> exactly, totally. No, I had no idea whiskey was going to become this popular. Um, none at all. It, it was a matter of like, okay, this is cool, and it's reflective of place, right? And you know, you're into that. I'm into that. I'm into anything that's reflective of a place, and so it was just natural. Like, all right, this is cool. Let's dive in, right? place matters it's everything actually it's the intellectual value that that keeps us going
0: and i feel like you would be a guy who would see that because you like to travel to places like you're the opposite of the person who just sits in one office and sends out emails i mean you're all over the world on a regular basis absolutely
1: i am incapable of sitting in one office and sending out emails in fact i'm yeah i am it's i'm unable to do that i have to travel and and then you accumulate those really cool experiences based on these places, and you know, even if you haven't been, you know, you, and and you have even a, a passing interest, we can all go and have a different glass of wine every night and experience something new, and know that that happened because of a place. And if it tugs at the strings of your heart, well, then you're going to go learn more.
0: Yeah, and that's drawn a lot of people into wine. The idea that you could go Absolutely. to Paris tonight and you know Milan tomorrow through a glass of wine—it's the best.
1: It's really the best, and you know when we are all at home, and you know maybe your day went well, and you want to celebrate and go to Paris, or maybe your your day didn't go well, and you want to console yourself in Milan. That's it's a very powerful and wonderful thing that we can avail ourselves of.
0: So whiskey gets a lot more popular in the two years that you're researching the sure book. Sure does. Yep. And what did that mean? I mean, when you're going to visit distilleries and ask samples from them, I mean, are they acting differently as you go through this process or do you see this registering differently in the world?
1: By and large, everyone was really good, you know, with like one exception. Um, And yeah, doers didn't want to have anything to do with our book. And you know what? I don't care whatever
0: doers. Um, So it wasn't like the super rare. It it wasn't, wasn't like Pappy Van Winkle was like, no, man.
1: No, it was so cool. And it wasn't even doers; It was their PR firm, in all fairness. They probably don't even know that, that some, some uh, PR person said, you know, we're not interested. Okay, well, whatever. Um, I, don't, I don't mind. Uh, everyone was, it was a, it's a very cool community. And it is a community, you know? That was really nice to see. And you know, the wine community is like, it's first nature. And I, I didn't know what we'd find with whiskey, but it's a really cool community. Even if it's owned by these big corporations, there are so many passionate people in the whiskey business that it was, it was just awesome. And so, you know, we're invited in and you know, places to stay and they want to cook for you and show you the whole thing and so on and so forth. And, and importantly, you know, we're writing this objectively, uh, particularly when it comes to the whiskey wheel, but, uh, you know, we easily spent the whole advance for the book and then some on actual whiskey samples. I mean, there was a point last summer when we were blind tasting Carla and I in, in our apartment and we had, I don't know, 350 bottles of whiskey on the floor of our apartment. Like, if you woke up in the in the night to go in the bathroom, you would to really be careful, like where you're going to step. Um, and it was a, when that was all done. It was a joy to give them away to your friends. That was pretty cool. But uh, it's it's uh, it's been a really wonderful thing to to be a part of and and get to know. And you know, the whole, I I think that that if that's the sort of second most important piece for me is getting to know it. You know, I knew about whiskey production uh, for one day in 2003, like my knowledge on a lot of things peaked and I went and took one test. You pass the test and immediately you start to forget this stuff. Like, Cause you're gonna, never
0: asked to pass that test again.
1: Never asked to pass that test again. Never once. And you know, ostensibly you're going to remember it all and be great. So long a, you know, in reality, you've shown commitment, but you're not going to remember all that stuff. At least I'm not going to, maybe some people do, I don't know. And then, so fast forward 10 years and I actually get to relearn it. And that's really fun. I mean, a lot's changed in the 10 years, but it's really, really fun to think like, okay, wait a minute, this is a job. And I get to go and learn about how all this stuff happens and travel these places. That's, that's pretty
0: great. It's pretty fun. So 300 bottles of whiskey. I mean, where do you start how do you start saying, okay, this is how I'm going to approach this subject. It comes
1: back to that P word, place. And so we we organize them by place. And then, you know, so here's Canada. And it's not enough to say here's Scotland. Here's Scotland, Highlands, Lowlands, here are the Scottish Isles. And then you taste these things blind and try to, well, first of all, again, you're, you're tasting objectively and not subjectively. We taste subjectively when we go to dinner and so decide we're actually going to drink and what's going to make us happy. But tasting objectively, like looking for things like balance and complexity. And, and once you figure that out, then it's, it's increasing. You, you order them. First of all, if it's balanced, it can stay on the table. If it's out of balance or particularly low quality or smells like you know paint thinner or something, it doesn't need to be in the book. So it comes off the table. And there, and there actually were a surprising number. I don't mean a, a ton of them, but some, there, some of those do exist. So, those come out.
0: So, it's like a magazine with scores that doesn't put the scores in for under 60 or whatever. Exactly. Like, you're not going to get a recommendation for a a terrible bottle of booze just because you seem to have indicated that you might like terrible booze.
1: Totally. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And a lot of those are actually craft. You know, like, just because it's craft doesn't mean it's good. Craft means crap more than, I mean, you know, as much as it means good. In in fact, it doesn't mean good. I don't even want to even give it that little window to say it is good just because it's small doesn't mean it's special you
0: know especially in a business like that where you're blending stock over years right yeah if you just started and you don't have the stock
1: yeah or the wherewithal in any number of areas doesn't mean it's going to be good because you made it out back with your buddies you know and this is your little play i mean whatever i those people are courageous for doing it but it has to be delicious that you know Starting from that point, it has to be delicious, has but to be drinkable.
0: I would imagine that there are craft products on the wheel, right? There oh, are. there are a
1: ton of craft products
0: yeah. on the wheel. It's not like you were like, oh, this craft stuff.
1: No, no, God, no. Um, there are a ton of craft products on the wheel, but you'd be surprised, man. You know, like Jack Daniels is Jack Daniels. But well, you know what? Jack Daniels is actually really, really well made, period. You know, it, is it the most complex thing out there? Not even close, but is it real made? really well made? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, and you have to acknowledge that. You know, time, money, and know-how; those things translate to drinkable booze. You know, and and again, I'm not here stumping for Jack or any of the, the those those brands, but um, to not acknowledge those resources and what they can produce would just be, you know, that's dishonest. So, anyways, you taste these things, and if and if they're they're drinkable, they stay on the table, and then you order them from you know what's easiest, you know, as in shootable or, you know, so on and so forth through, maybe you should be sipping this and focusing a little bit more because it has more to say, you know, the choir has more voices all the way to the far end of the scale where, yeah, this is going to require a lot of you, whether you want to listen to it or not, like you're not going to be pounding Laphroaig 30 or, you know, Ardbeg, some of their, whatever it may be. Those things have a ton to say, and they don't go down that easily. And that's not to say that they're hot, harsh, or hard. It's like they're screaming at you to pay attention when you put it in your mouth. And, and so that's really how this thing's organized. So if you find your way to the Scottish Isles, you want something super easy and sessionable, well, drink Scapa, right? It's delicious. It's 80 proof. It's not hard. It's super pretty. It reflects its place. But you know, if you know, as you work towards the right, the, the graduation on this wheel, to the more and more complicated things... You know that's where you are going to find things like you know the little frogs, if you will, um, where yeah you can, you you ought to sip on it and probably ought not mix with it unless you're topping off my favorite cocktail uh, ever, which is penicillin. So
0: you know they you were you can try to ignore them, but it's impossible. You know what I mean? And what about cocktails? I mean, are some of these flavors that we're identifying on the flavor wheel are, are some of them better as a cocktail?
1: Some of them are better. And yeah, you don't necessarily want to go and mix some of these old and fine and delicate nuanced things because in the mixing, you lose everything they had to say in the first place. Whereas things that are maybe less detailed serve as a great base upon which to add other things, right? You know, the course is complete in the Lafroy 30-year, but it's, you know, it's not complete or, or it can be added to in an additive pretty way. And something maybe younger
0: or, or, you know, less complex to start with. Was there anything that surprised you about production when you went to visit some of these distilleries? Was there something we're like, huh? Yeah, how much they can make and how quickly. You know, it's so crazy. Big difference from the wine business.
1: Oh, God, it's crazy. I was in one of these distilleries where it's a continuous still. So not pot still. There's not a batch. Stop. Do another batch. It just goes. And there's consecutive evaporations as you go up up through the still. And it spat out in a 24 hour period enough to make almost 25,000 cases of bourbon per day. You're like, that's staggering. And they still don't have enough. It's just, it's mind blowing. You just stand there and you're not drinking from it because it's so alcoholic, but it's literally a fire hydrant, a booze coming at you. And you're just like, holy cow, you know, it's splashing into the proof box and this big, waterfall and it's it's so impressive to see and you just scratch your head and you're like wow this is a big business it's amazing and impressive you know it's, I, who figured that in the first place you know it's, it's
0: impressive too it seems like the liquor business definitely has its trends oh for sure you yeah. know like bourbon is so popular right now yeah that i see scotch producers saying oh it's bourbon with finish and yeah. you're like, wasn't it often bourbon wood finish before? Uh, like, it wasn't that a thing that you guys did a lot? But now yeah. it's like advertised. Like, yeah. Y- you know what I mean?
1: Yep. Well, they're just competing for their market share, right? It's it's that thing. Like, oh, well, maybe we need to use this hook to get people's attention back. And, you know, the water is ebb and flow. And in the end, whiskey consumption, regardless of where it's from, is going up. And the world's only getting smaller, right? There are more and more people with more and more money in their pocket and many without. And that's a different topic. But you know they, these guys—they—they they can't make enough, and—and and that's a problem, actually. You know, it depends on how people respond to it. I was super bummed to see some of the producers very recently, particularly of my own beloved Japanese whiskeys, which I, I'm all about, drop age statements. That sucks. You know, it used to be whatever. We'll let the brands remain unnamed, but well, it's not. Like, didn't Nika just drop all their age statements? I mean, that—that's a bummer to me. You know, I—I I was. I geeked out on this stuff and learned about it and came to understand what I like and at what age it made sense. And, you know, older is not necessarily better. That's a good thing to know about whiskey, but I found, you know, with this whiskey, it was 12 years. And with that whiskey, I preferred 18 years. And with this whiskey, I preferred 21 years. And now those are all gone. And you're like, well, I, I don't I mean, selfishly, I don't want to start again. And, Selfishly, I feel like you're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. You know, I feel like I'm being fleeced a little bit when you do that. So that's a disturbing, to me, development of the growing popularity of whiskey.
0: Because we saw the popularity of vodka really alter or mutate or at least at the very much enlarge the category into all of these bottles. Yep. And then there was this, like someone pulled the rug out and like the market totally changed. Yeah.
1: Well, people are getting smarter. Yeah, I mean, sure. There's still plenty of crappy booze sold, and so on and so forth. But um, but people are getting smarter. But you know, if you're gravitating towards Japanese whiskey, you know you're 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 getting smarter too and thinking about this in a, in a meaningful way. But the thing that you brought that actually brought you there, your search is now you know the, the goal is being taken away, which is kind. Of, it's a bummer, you know. I mean, for me, it's it's, it's saddening. Like, what if all the Rioja went away? And it was just like, well, here's Rioja. Well, what is it Reserva? Is it Grand Reserva? Like, It's just Rioja. This is just what we do. Like, well, you know what? I'm not interested. I'm going to go drink something
0: else. So one of the distinctions you make in the book is between warm areas and cold areas. Yep. And that has to do with more like with aging,
1: right? Yeah, with aging. And after spending a lot of time with this stuff, you you see that like any reaction in our universe, things proceed at a higher rate if it's warmer temperature accelerates these things and if it's colder it slows it down and so when you do age it in a warmer environment that aging happens in a much more accelerated version as opposed to maybe more protracted or glacier in in a cooler wetter environment and so whereas 18 might be a great age for scottish whiskey 18 can frequently be too old for an american whiskey Or you didn't have to go to 18 to achieve the same patina, same effects, because the thing's clicking along at a very, very fast rate. You know, when sitting in a hot Rick house in Kentucky.
0: Maybe that's part of the reason why the Nika thing is frustrating to you, because one of the indicators about Mm -hmm. how you enjoyed this is now taken away.
1: Totally, 100%. Yeah, it's a bummer.
0: When I think, well, what's Richard going to do next? I'm sure it's going to be successful but Thank with you. the book I mean because it always I can't I'm having a hard time thinking of the the Waterloo of Richard like <laughs> that time that you were like yeah we invested a lot of money it didn't it work out yeah. oh whoops yeah. but I mean a lot of the a lot of the spirits guys who come in here Tell me, and I know this isn't something that you think about a lot in terms of what's going to be big next. But they tell me, you know, probably the category that's ripe for change in a positive direction is brandy, cognac. Yes. And there's so much relation to place there that that yes. seems like a natural for you. It, yes. Might I down the road, a couple of years from now, might there be the brandy book, scratch and sniff? Or
1: it, it very well could happen. It's amongst the possibilities. I sure do like drinking brandy. Yeah, it that, that applies. That makes sense. And it also plays to patina, which
0: I I find immensely interesting. It's a concept that you've talked about a lot when it comes to wine.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's huge. And, you know, even when you take pictures, things that only happen, you know, when they're weathered or I think the Japanese word is shibui, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's that beauty that can only happen with time and, and some friction. That's to me, that's just the prettiest thing.
0: Is that ever a reflection for you of your own getting older? Do you ever think to yourself, oh, man, you know, I mean, to, to spin it back to the personal Richard for a second. Do you ever think like, yeah, this is what's made me stronger, like this weathering through time. Like I've learned a few things.
1: Uh, oh, totally. Totally. And, and learning how to get beyond them. That's, that's the key, you know, how to get, to get beyond the, the bad stuff. The easy stuff, you know, or the wins, you don't really learn much from a win, you know, but you learn things when you, or you learn more when it's a struggle. Yeah. So I think about that a lot.
0: So you do have a lot of other projects in the air, things you've done, mm-hmm. things you're about to release, things you have released. Yeah. What are some of the things that are front of mind these days? Two in particular.
1: First is Sombra. We're making really, really cool mezcal and sombra. And that's a very interesting category. It wasn't a category when I started, we're we're in our 10th year, which is pretty cool. And when we started, you know, it was us and, and Del and, uh, and there was also a Scorpion brand at the time. I don't know if they're still around or not,
0: but, but now it's a thing and people dedicate whole bars to it. Exactly. And that's really
1: rewarding. You know, when we started, people thought we were insane and now it's, it's cool. And we're very much on a singular vision with this. You know, I don't, um, I have a friend, Terry Layton of Kalen wines, and he said it so beautifully. It was in relation to something else, but I applied to everything. And he's like, I'm into data, not dogma. And man, I just fucking love that. And I really think the wine industry and the spirits industry could do with more of that, you know, instead of jumping up and down in some soapbox about something that we all think, you know, it has to be this, it has to be that can't have any stems has to be a whole cluster. Like, you know what? Why don't you go fucking learn something, and then let's talk about it. You know, come with a fact, and then it then it's interesting. And so, you know, as I think about, as I apply that to Mescal, you know, there's so many variables to control, or not. But if you're going to make something that allows a consumer to get a hold of it and like it, then you you better at least re-deliver, re-deliver, re-deliver every time they come looking for it. You know, I what I what was frustrating and enlightening to me is I bought a bottle of tequila Ocho, I think it was 2009, it was nine or 10 Los Mangos. And that was the, the, the um, parcel that they had harvested and made that tequila from and it's just Blanco. And I really liked it. And I went back to the store and I was like, Hey, I need this. And they're like, well, that's it for seven years. And disappointed me was like, damn it. You know what? Like, fuck, I really wanted another bottle of that and I can't have it. And then, you know, I took a minute and, take a few breaths, calm down. You're like, you know, that's actually really, really smart. And it's really, really honest and good for them for saying, you know what, now it comes from this place or that place or the other place. So it's not this whole false advertising idea. It's like, this is this and this is what it is. And I was like, you know what, high five to those guys for being so forthright about it. So as pertains to Mezcal, there are lots of, you know, experiments you can do. And you can say this is from this place and this is from that place. But unless you really hold all the variables constant, I'm not so interested. You know, unless, unless there's total transparency there. For us, you know, we're, we're actually making a blend. It's coming from really three places. And it's about making, you know, we want to be singularly the very, very best. And this is not as in the most yummy yeah, yummy is a real thing and the most complex. And yummy is often overlooked. It's like, oh, wow, it has a lot to say. Yeah, but is it delicious? Like, just because it has a lot to say doesn't mean I want to drink it. You know, or you put it in your mouth and it hurts. Like, that's not fun. So we're thinking a lot about that. And you know, to it, we're building a distillery, uh, three of them, in fact. And two of them are very, very, very small. But um, they serve an, an important purpose. But the largest of the three is... I couldn't be more excited about. I've never undertaken a project of this scale. And that's thrilling to me. You know, in, in the end, when you when you look at it, like, so what does that mean to build a distillery? And why are you in a foreign to, country? In a foreign country. And then people say, like, why are you qualified to do that? Or like, you know, who's the master of Mescalera? It's like, well, you know, I, I'm I'm the arbiter of taste with this project. And I'm not saying no more than other people how to do this, but I am saying, like, I can look at this process and come to it from a scientific point of view and say, like, these are the important pieces of the last 600 years, and we're going to keep those. For example, we're going to roast with real wood in the ground. That really matters. We're going to do that. Furthermore, we figured out that there's a mesquite horizon. That's my own ism for you use the wood that's around, and mesquite grows up to whatever it is, 5,500 feet, I don't want to roast with mesquite because it's so sappy that you get a very, very smoky fire and then it makes for a very, very smoky mescal and it runs over the mescal just like too much oak on your Chardonnay does, right? So we're not interested in that. So we're going to dial in the type of wood and use Encina, which comes from a higher elevation and so on and so forth. That's point one. Point two is if we did it like you did for the last 600 years, well, you would chop more wood to fire the still. But why use wood? Like the smoke doesn't penetrate the still, you know, it's a copper still. All you're doing is, you know, contributing to global warming. So if we can use biofuel from other spent pieces of the process to fire the still, well, then we're getting better, right? We're doing better by the planet. We're doing better by, you know, not just the CO2, but actually saving some trees along the way, you know, and that, that matters. You can say, well, for the last six hundred years, you just after you've run the second load through the still, you just take all the stuff and, you know, over the edge it goes, and the river carries it away. Well, what is all that stuff? Like, what's actually in that? And furthermore, who lives downriver? You know, so figuring out how to deal with that stuff responsibly, I I couldn't be more stoked to make it. I mean, I think it'll be a real contribution to how this stuff is made and and doing it responsibly. And you know, whether you like it or not, again, you know, I'm less interested in that. I'm I'm, I'm happy to drink your share, but. Um, I, I do know that we'll be doing this in a way that's really impactful and, and really positive to Oaxaca and to, you know, Mescal at large. So,
0: thinking a lot about that. Rationalizing the process, right? Like yeah. going and be like, hey, this works, this doesn't work. Let's yeah. try to make this a little better. Totally.
1: I mean, a great example would be I, you know, I, I spent some time on the, going around the Colima volcano, which is erupting right now. It's, such a beautiful thing webcams of mexico if you guys are paying attention you should follow that on twitter it's just the most beautiful amazing thing you can drop into different points of mexico all throughout the day and i've been watching the colima volcano erupt it's so it's so beautiful i mean as a former geologist i get off on that stuff but i, I dig it so i was on this volcano and you guys there that they're in jalisco but they're not making tequila they're making their own their own distillate you know you really like, could be called ricia or mezcal and and it's made from all kinds of different types of agave. Some of them take 30 years to mature. And it's such a beautiful thing. And the guy called me over and said, Hey, man, smell my fermenters. You know, check these things out. And I opened it up and it was this huge, acrid nose full of acetic acid and vinegar. And I'm like, wow, that's really intense. And your eyes are streaming and watering. And he's like, Yeah, we've, it's always a 28 day fermentation. And it's the way we've always done it. And I'm all about the way we've always done it, except when the way we've always done it takes something that had something to say and turned it into a uniform thing, which is this acetic thing, and you lose all of the beauty of a 30-year-old agave plant. You know what I mean by that? Yeah, because a fault is something
0: that makes it taste like everything else. It makes it taste like everything else.
1: Like, I like a little bit of pertanomyces in my wine, but too much of it just runs it over. Then I'm out. You know, I like a little bit of ye because it can be a catalyst for other aromas, but if it's just all ye. All the other aromas just got punched in the mouth, and they they don't exist anymore.
0: And that comes back to what you were saying about place before. Exactly. Like you would
1: like this to matter. Exactly. Exactly. And so, it's. I want to be really clear. We're not saying, hey, we know
0: how to do this better. It's, it's about looking at what... Because if- I imagine that charge could happen. Like someone would be like, who's this white guy coming down to... 100%, 100%. Ho- you know what I mean? Like 100%. who's this gentrifier or whatever? Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, you know, gentrifier who's put like, you know, I don't know, millions of dollars in that economy at this point. So in no way, shape or form, you know, we're making a contribution. And it's backed by data, not dogma. Like this is, this is it. We're trying to do something. We're trying to better the whole thing not run it over. And so, you know, I'm an open book with that. If anyone has a, you know, conflict with it, bring it, you know, let's, let's chat. I I got it. Not
0: on Twitter though. No Twitter fights.
1: No Twitter fights. Don't believe in those. Um, The other thing I'm thinking a lot about is uh, the commute back to Australia. And when Betts and Scholl ended, it was my first wine project, it ended rather violently. Um, You know, it's like someone tried to do that trick with the tablecloth and well, the tablecloth pulled all the, all the fancy Zaltos and China and silverware onto the table with it and made a great big clang.
0: You had sold a large stake of the company, the whole thing, and sold then the whole thing to a public company. They shut the lights out on you.
1: They did. Um, and that was, that was really a very, very hard, uh, moment for me. Um, because it wasn't our expectation going into it. I mean, Hey, look, we got paid. I mean, I'm super honest about that. Um, and you
0: can you can read it, it's a public record. But it was something you built, and then it wasn't there anymore, and that upset you. And it's not what you had talked about when you made the deal.
1: It's not what we talked about when we made the deal, and we learned that um, you know it's kind of an oil and water. And hey, look, I I wish those guys all the best. Next play, next play, right? You know, I don't hold grudges. I don't think about that stuff, but. It turns out that you know their their bailiwick isn't making red wine, which requires you know so much forethought, so much investment, and then you sit on it for years and years, and then you go and sell it. Like that's not what they do, um, and they didn't do they didn't understand that at the time. So uh, I get it; it was rough, but you know in the end, it's probably for the best because as I look at all the things in that project that came off the table. Some were really um, were easier and some were harder and some were more gratifying and some were a real struggle. And then you turn back to your table, which is empty. And you say, oh, wait a minute, I get to reset this thing now. Well, I'm not going to just pick it all and put it right back up there. I'm going to say, well, what's the interesting piece? Well, one interesting piece coincided synergistically with some enthusiasms that Carla and I share, uh, which is super exciting. And it's it's nice to share in that with someone. It was nice to share in it with Dennis. Dennis Scholl and I have had very, and we may end up working together again here. We're we're working on that. But um, he and I had those that great set of complementary skill sets. A lot of times that meant, you know, I'm in Australia by myself doing the thing. And it's it's so wonderful that in, in this time around, have some complementary skill sets that that also travel together and you know the person you want to spend your life with. And so Carla and I have gone back and got this great little piece of vineyard in uh, in Vinevale which is the real you know you say Barossa people are like oh yeah Barossa wine's big fat things. no not at all is all sand the cool part of the Barossa and, like cool climate was. Yeah exactly and sure there are some very very warm days there but within the Barossa I mean look the the Australians have done such a shitty job promoting their their you know the wine industry there so they're just terrible at
0: it and why do you think that is corporate ownership or what?
1: Uh, I think that they came to America in a small and interesting way that that was fine, and no one was really like trying to, you know, put a pin on it on exactly what worked. And then the thing that caught everyone's attention were the critter labels that commercially were extraordinarily successful, and so everyone hopped on that bandwagon. I'm like, oh, it's fruity, and it's big, and it's cheap. I'm, this is like i'm looking at that going like you morons you know you make wine from what's you know ostensibly dc down to miami across to austin texas spot to california and then all the way back up to oregon you're selling it all as one thing like that's so stupid i mean, I mean aside from offending my my you know sense of place it, it's just it's just dumb you know people want diversity so I think that that served them quite poorly. And then everyone turned their back on it. Like, okay, because as we do, you know, we we generalize. And like, okay, I understand Australian wine. And for that, I don't even like it, you know? And so they move on. And so all these producers are left scratching their head. And, you know, we never sold Betts & Scholl as, as an Australian wine. We sold it as this as Grenache. And,
0: and sometimes you know. it wasn't an
1: Australian wine. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes it wasn't. But so we're we're back in this very, very special part of the world where it's all about Grenache growing in sand of which there's not a lot on the planet. And, you know, we, I don't, you know, apart from maybe the Balkans or in Eastern Europe, there's not gonna be, there's not a whole lot left to discover. And so like, oh my God, there's amazing raw material, really, really old unrooted stuff left. Doesn't exist. The planet's been explored. People will do different and better things with all this material that exists. But Australia is still that place that nobody's thinking about. So we went went back there um, both his lovers of Grenache, walked into the best vineyard that we used to use. It's own rooted, ninety years old, ninety years old, own rooted, grown in sand, and feral. The guy prunes once a year, and he harvests once a year, and nothing else happens, and nobody cares. Nobody wants the grapes. And in some years, they didn't even get harvested. In the interim, before you know, in the break, I was forced to take. And so we're back there, and when we think about resetting the table, think okay, well, these are the lessons we learned with um, particular reference to Grenache. And what were the things that that you want to change, Carl? And she's like, well, what if we, how do we do this? Or how do we make it more like that? And I think, okay, and then what are the things I want to change? Like, well, I always wanted to add some some of these stems or whatever it is. Or, you know, I wanted to clean up my cooperage a little bit more. You know, first time down, I bought all these crazy barrels. Some barrels that don't even have names, crazy shapes and, you know, 40, 50, 60-year-old barrels. Well, some of those are actually quite dirty, you know. So things have to be at least clean. So we've made these small tweaks and uh, have been quietly working on this for the last couple of years. Um, the wine actually comes out now. So October of 2015. Um, it should get off the boat any day now. And it's, it's under the, the larger title of An Approach to Relaxation. That's the name of the project. That's the name of the project, An Approach to Relaxation. And it's uh, at this point a single wine, which is this Grenache, um, called Souset. And it's for sure... The prettiest grenache I've ever been a part of. It is so pretty. I, I think um, we'll be back in Manhattan to do some blind tastings with, it and I, there, no one's going to say like, "Oh, this is Barossa Valley." I, I'm pretty certain everyone's going to think it's from somewhere different, and that sort of flies in the face of what I'm talking about in terms of sense of place. I would just say that we don't have a really well developed idea of what place is in Australia. Um, and so we help to contribute to that, but more more importantly to us is that we help to contribute to people's pleasure principle.
0: Grenache on sand.
1: What does that do? What does that bring? So great. It brings uh, brings high toned aromatics. When I smell a wine, I think about it like the musical register, and the bass is important, but it's kind of easy. You know, let the thing get ripe. Right. The mezzo exists, and sometimes that's where things stop. But it's the alto, you know, when you get to the upper register where you start to ring the bell. And that's where all the sex appeal is, where the flowers are, the minerality, and, you know, all the, all the things that make it make it sexy. And growing Grenache on sand does that. It brings that in a real way. You lose color on sand. I don't give a shit about color. I am so uninterested in color. And it used to be one of the things that drove me nuts as a sommelier when you get table side and, you know, pull the cork and pour a glass and the taster would look at it and say, Oh, it's going to be great. You know, cause it's blue. And you're just like thinking your head, like, you moron is, that has nothing to do with it. You know, maybe it's Pinot Noir and it's blue and it's actually really shitty. <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's, it's such a confusing thing and it's not really, it's just a matter of education, but like, I don't care about color. I'd rather look at someone beautiful or something beautiful and let the wine smell and taste beautiful. Cause that's the whole point. So you lose color on sand, but you gain amazing aromatics. Um, you lose more color when you add stems, right? It's potassium that saps the color too. A lot but of potassium you, in the soil in Australia. In the stems in particular here. And, and not in our sand, no. I mean, the cool relationship in the sand we grow in is that it's just, um, it's eroded granite from the Barossa Ranges in Eden Valley, which it's sitting right next to. So you have this really, it's, a, it's such a cool little microclimate where cold air, from the Eden Valley Brosa Ranges runs down through this gully, which runs right through Vinevale and cools the whole thing off. And similarly, when it rains, it brings down all that granite and it degrades into sand. See this big, cold pile of sand. And it's, for me, it's the sweet spot. And you can go five kilometers, right? Maybe it's 10 kilometers, but it's not far out to Greenwich or Marananga. You know, you can see it from Vinevale and it's clay and it's hot. And the wines are so different it, and it's, it's so cool. It's really, really special.
0: Cause when I think of Granite Creek, it sounds a lot different than what you're describing.
1: So different, you know, Granite Creek will be three and a half, four alcohol points higher. It'll have been harvested weeks earlier. And those are good if you like that style. I mean, objectively, you know, are they good wines? Yeah. I mean, they're well-made wines. Are they wines I want to drink? No. Is that why I fly to Australia? No. So
0: what uh, are some of your neighbors there? Are there other? Rusden. I assume. Rusden. And you always um, had a connection with them.
1: Always had a connection with Rusden. Christian Canute, I love that guy like my brother. He's, if, if I had a brother, it'd be him. Or he is him. So we we work with Christian who learned his craft at Rockford. Very, very traditional Barossa winemaking. Barossa basket and press. And- basket press, 1800s bag shock crusher, whole thing. And so, Christian's great, and he keeps us from hitting the wall, you know. So, they make resin there, and there are some similarities, and, and there are some, some big differences, too. But Christian lets us, um, you know, lets us dream and make sure that we don't smash straight into the wall, <laughs> which is helpful.
0: I remember the Chronic pretty well, which yeah. is a wine you released under Bess and Scholl. Exactly. How does this Grenache differ from that? I mean, what are the changes stylistically or in method that are notable here? Yeah,
1: I love that you bring that up. So, the Chronic was the vineyard that we're using now was an ingredient in the chronic. So that's, I'm, I'm glad that you, you remember that. So that's a thread. That's a common thread. The place where we make it is the same place. The process is the same, right? So it's open top fermenter, um, you know, and you know, plus or minus eight day ferment in these open top fermenters and really open to everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, the rain, whatever falls is going to fall in there. Um, basket pressed and then one big difference is that we're in the two vintages that we've crushed so far, we've ended up at 20% whole cluster with the Grenache. Now, I used to do a lot of it with the Shiraz, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but we had never done it with the Grenache yet. And so we found, you know, we, we play on both sides of it is just like, again, you bracket a photograph, but we really feel like, you know, so far in the two years we've done it, 20% is the right amount of stem inclusion. It brings a little more structure as an aromatic lift. It's really, really cool, and that that never existed. Uh, I and mean, had lift for different reasons, but we never used stems in the & Shoal Grenache.
0: And I feel like some of the new wave Australian guys, like Achota Barrels, are using more stems on grape varieties like Grenache, right?
1: Yep, absolutely for sure. And it's so cool to see all these guys doing it. I do think you know it's uh, and and I put us. In this camp, too, I, I hope there's not a rush to the other pole.
0: Uh huh. Which could easily, it could be a seesaw in Australia. Like everyone could be like, well, that's not working at all. Let's go this other way.
1: And from the consumer point of view, too, I mean, we see it in California, you know, in Pursuit of Balance, you know, all, all my friends are in that movement but it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do.
0: Well, I've you know? also heard people in Australia compare the new wave Australians to new California. I mean, it's been verbalized very yeah, clearly.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I used that title for a seminar I gave at Food and Wine a couple years ago, the, the new Australia uh, with John's blessing. Thank you, John. And so I think... I'm hopeful that that there's a measured response or embrace of these sorts of things. And you do bracket, you know what I mean? When we talk about bracketing a photograph, which none of us do anymore because we all shoot photographs on our phones or with digital. But before you'd be like, well, I'm going to go to whatever f-stop it is. Then you'd shoot the same photograph at one f-stop above and one f-stop below. And so, again, that's back to the data, not dogma. You don't shoot everything at f-16 with the aperture totally cranked it's about, under, you want to learn, right? You want to learn along the way. And just because you went all the way to one pole doesn't mean that's the prettiest place to be. You know, the thing you hated was at the other pole. Well, maybe there's something really pretty in the middle, in the 360 degrees, you know, or, you know, depending on what side you're on, there's got to be something pretty. So that's, that's the hope. Because I think then, 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 you know we'll we'll actually have more great wine to drink as opposed to things that are just really anemic or really really slutty and fat you know like somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot so I, I think i think there's a real earnest effort to find that
0: one of the other projects you've been involved with that's done pretty well is the my essential wines yeah it has done well it's done really well particularly the rosé i mean i mean know, another time where richard was like hey i think i'm going to make rosé and then all of a sudden the trend yeah. I mean, has gone huge into huge. rose. I it's mean, been right? It's I mean, been out of control. Were you looking at some charts before you did the project that no. said, like, hey, man, in a couple of years, rose is going to go out of mind? <laughs> I mean, it's just like ins- Like the amount of growth in the rose category. Yeah. The rose
1: thing's funny. When we thought about that, and look, under that, my essential thing, it all sells, but some of it sells more quickly than others. But the the idea there, was to finally make good on my ism that wine's a grocery, not a luxury. And it's easy to have that ism, but I, I had no forward-facing element of that. I was making Betts and Scholl, and those wines were expensive. You know, now we're making an approach to relaxation. The first one is Sousset. It's, you know, it's 50 bucks. It's not nothing. And it's worth more than that, I think, you know. But but with um, the my essential thing, is like, okay, how do we, what are those groceries? Like, what do I drink a lot of? And again, if Levy's not going to drink it, I'm going to drink it all. So what do I want to drink? Well, I want to drink Provencal Rosé. Furthermore, it has to be straight to press Provencal Rosé. So what's the difference of that? You know what? I just, I think Sanye is bullshit. I think it's cheating. I think, uh, you know, it started as, at first Sanye used to just like fill up the Napa River or wherever all that stuff goes, you know, so you put the grapes in in the fermenter and I don't know 15 17 hours later you open the drain and a whole bunch of that that you know juice that is is released when it's crushed under its own weight is pink and if you dump it out the remaining juice is going to be quite a bit darker and you're going to do your better your your best to uh, impress bob parker or lauby or whoever it is you're trying to
0: impress so it was a byproduct of trying to make bigger wines that exactly. are red and they exactly. had this byproduct that they could sell
1: exactly and that used to just go down the drain then they figured out wait rosé's hot so i'm going to ferment it well you know what you didn't you in that process there's no extraction of any meaningful way of the structure from the seeds the structure from the skins and the structure from the stems. And when you, when you commit to growing red grapes to make rosé and you throw those in the press and you turn that press on, you extract elements from the, the, the stems, the seeds, and the skins that actually give it structure and make it refreshing, which is the whole point of rosé in the first place. You know, it's supposed to be, I mean, with some notable exceptions, it's really supposed to be refreshing and yummy.
0: Because the press pushes the skins. Yeah, pushes everything. Those elements come down into juice. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I mean, pressure, you know, pressure leads to extraction. So, yeah.
0: Yep. And you can kind of determine from where you stop the press or what the press cycle is, how much of that you want in the juice. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And, you you know, you don't have to be super gentle with it. You know, you can't go full gas. But, you know, extracting some structure matters. You know, structure... It's all about balance, right? You know, when I just put maple syrup in your mouth, it feels flabby. You add a squeeze of lemon and it comes back into balance and you don't perceive the sugar, whatever it is. So it's the same thing. It's grape juice, albeit hopefully dry. And when you have some structure, it gives it buoyancy and it it triggers all those good physiological effects, right? It makes your mouth water, makes your belly rumble. What does that make you do? Have another drink, you know, order some food. And that's the the whole point of this thing. So yeah, yeah, I do... um, You know, I could have had, who knows, one of the things that we did try to do, you know, we're sitting here drinking sherry. I'm smitten with the stuff and have really enjoyed being there in Jerez and tried to get involved in a project there. And they all said no, which is such a trip. You can go to some of these places and you, you go in the bodegas. And you're tasting out of a barrel and you're tasting these profound wines. They're like, you know, seven years old, 10 years old. And and they've got color, you know, as, you know, as they should. Even biologically aged stuff has taken on color at that point. And so profound. And then you see what sometimes, in the case of some companies, they become. They become like this $2, perfectly clear bottle of, you know, fino or manzanilla that just gets knocked back at these fairs and like i love the spirit with which it's consumed i'm just horrified to think that that thing was so pretty and took that long to make and then you just like strip out every ounce of beauty like oh my god how about can i just come bottle this stuff in magnums as is you know and they're like nope how about i pay you like 10 times and like nope and it's like wow I mean that's, that's cool. I mean in the end it's not it's not a heartbreak. Um, we just go there and drink it there. You know, at barrel that's always fun. But it was shocking. Maybe that could have been my Waterloo. You know, <laughs> a container of unfind unfiltered sherry on the water. Who who knows? Who knows what would happen? But um, man, I hope somebody does it. You know, there's a lot of great sherry to drink. But that's one of the, those shocking things.
0: What about that rosé market? I mean, has it affected how you can make wine? The change in the market?
1: No. There's so much material in the south of France. There's so much material. And this year's a great year. Big yields, good quality. And, you know, it's rose making is really easy. You know, you figure it out, don't screw it up. So, no, I think that if you want to make rose from places that aren't made for that, it's probably hard. Like, you want to try to do it in Napa? Well, you know, you're going to buy $10,000 a pound grapes and make rose? Yeah. It doesn't sound like a good proposition, but I don't know. Spain's another place where you could probably get a whole lot of really interesting material
0: to make rosé. There's so, there's so much wine in Europe. It seems like the strategy is look for where wine is undervalued. Think about why. Yep. What is market? Is it production? And then go in and, and basically bring the expertise that you have as a person who sees the market, the U.S. Mm-hmm. market, Yep. and then goes in and says, you know, what if it were made like this, Yeah, wouldn't it work? I yeah. mean, to me, it reminds me of like the baby boomer film directors who went in to the Hollywood studios and were like, look, mm-hmm. let's make Easy Rider because mm-hmm. you're not reaching the kids. Let exactly. me tell you how to reach the kids. Yep.
1: If there's one step that comes before that, which is what is it I want to drink? That's that, the intersection of enthusiasm and opportunities. And I really plot those two like curves on a graph. What am I enthusiastic about? Tons of stuff. Where does that intersect with opportunity? Well, you know, some of them don't intersect with opportunity. I think there's probably something really interesting to be done. I still feel this way with Grenache from the Baja Peninsula. I really believe there's got to be something interesting there. Is there any opportunity? Zippo. You know, both, I mean, on, on lots of levels. You know, maybe that's just, maybe I was spared. Maybe it's the same thing with my, my magnums of, of unfined, unfiltered cherry and starting a whole Solera. you know. Enthusiasm? Yes. Opportunity? No. So where those things intersect, that's when you then do that next, you know, that, that's the, the calculation you mentioned is that's the opportunity calculation. And so if that, it's not enough just to do that, you know, that has to then intersect with the, with the enthusiasm curve, right? So it's that checks and balances.
0: It's got to pass the sniff
1: test. Yeah. Yeah. You got to wake up every day and be psyched about it, you know?
0: Richard Betts has been looking for the connection between enthusiasm and opportunity, and he's found it several times. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Richard Betts has just released the Essential Scratch and Sniff Guide to Becoming a Whiskey Know-It-All. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Rob Moose